0: If you have in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 3, let's start reading in verse 14, and we'll close the chapter together. Paul says this, For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that He may grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power in the inner man through His Spirit, and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that the The words we're singing together as a church, we exalt thee over and above every other false God, we we exalt thee and thee alone, would ring true in this house. I pray that as the word is open and as as the gospel unleashes its power by the the spirit of, of the living God in this place, that idols would crumble to the ground, all of that stuff that perhaps we've brought into this building, the things that we look to for our hope and our security and our strength, and our joy, and our purpose, I pray that they would crumble just as Dagon, the the Philistine God, whose arms and head crumbled to the ground in the presence of the one true living God. So I pray that our idols would crumble to the ground in the presence of the one true living God. I pray that you would make yourself known and that through your word, Jesus, your glory would be put on display in such a way that we would find ourselves either fighting against it to ignore or jumping into it to enjoy. Only you're able to do that, Lord. We are sinners, sinners who are looking for a Savior, and I pray that Christ, you would make your saving grace known above all other things. To such an extent that we would keep coming back for more. We love you, Lord. We love you because you first loved us. We look to your word now. We pray that you would teach us by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In the weeks prior to the summer that we were, uh, we've been going through a these series with one another. When we were in Ephesians, and as we were going back into Ephesians, there was this common theme, a a golden thread, if you would, that that pierced its way not only through the book of Ephesians, but through the entire Bible. It was this, and we, we looked at it specifically in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 11, that all of this was according to God's eternal purpose accomplished in the Messiah, that God actually has a purpose. He's not randomly, uh, abstractly doing things arbitrarily for no apparent reason. He's actually on a mission. And God's mission, as we studied through Ephesians from Genesis to Revelation, is actually quite simple as much as it is profound. That God desires to share himself with people. He desires both to dwell among his people and he desires to share himself with them. That is why he created you and I. He created you and I for the sole purpose of dwelling among his people and sharing himself with them. And as we go into Paul's prayer right now, starting in verse 14, Paul is praying that the church would fully grasp what that actually means. He's praying that we would somehow be enabled by the power of God to understand the depth of that truth that's locked up in the book of Ephesians. And in the Bibles that we carry with us. And he's actually, he, he's taking this posture of prayer. It says in verse 14, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. The, the typical posture of prayer for a Jew in that day was to stand in the presence of God. On occasion, they would fall to their knees in prayer when they were overcome with an intense sense of emotion, when they just couldn't handle what they were praying for. They would on occasion fall to their knees under the weight of that which they were praying for. Paul falls to his knees and he begins to pray that the church would begin to grasp something. Specifically, that God would cause them to be able to grasp this something. And he is so desperately longing for the people that he's speaking to, for the church in Ephesus and for the church at reality and abroad, for the church at large to Grasp this that he beseeches God in every single person, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He asks all three of them for favors. He's just asking the whole Trinity to to engage in, in the salvation of the church. He starts with the Father in verse 16. He says, I pray that the Father, He may grant you, listen to this, according to the riches of His glory. Literally, according to the riches that consist of His glory. We could say, that God is rich in glory and that his glory is what makes him rich. They're both the same. It is the priceless emanation coming off of God that is everything about him that is wonderful. It is his attributes and his characteristics. It's what makes him him. It's what makes him good. It is what what exists in God that makes us want to worship him. And everything that is done by God, is done from the standpoint of His glory. Everything, He does it to put Himself on display. Everything that the church should do should be for His glory, to put God on display. God does this the best. He puts His glory on display. And one of the richest displays of His glory is seen in the scandalous salvation of sinners By grace. It is the way in which He brags the most about Himself because nobody would ever do that. Nobody would ever save people who don't deserve to be saved just out of sheer love. God does it. We see, uh, turn back one page to chapter 1, we see this constant theme throughout just the first chapter of Ephesians in verse 6, or in verse 5 and 6, He predestined us to be adopted Through Jesus Christ for Himself, according to His favor and will, verse 6, here it is, to the praise of His glorious grace that He favored us with in the beloved. Verse 7, we have redemption in Him through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Again, in verse 12. We are predestined in 11, according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. Here it is. So that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. Again, in verse 14. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Again, in verse 18. I pray that the perception of your mind may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the glorious riches of His inheritance among the saints. Yeah, to the praise of His glory. Not only is the glory of God what tickles God, but it is what everything else exists around. It is that which if we can tap into and focus and lift our eyes to see, we will discover true satisfaction and enjoyment. But what is Paul praying according to the riches of his glory. He's saying, I pray that you would do this for his glory. He moves on from the Father to the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says in verse 16. Chapter 3. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit. So, I pray that for the Father's glory, you would be empowered by the Holy Spirit in the inner man. Two things. He's praying that you and I, as Christians, would be strengthened, too. He's praying that 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 strength would come into the inner man. Now, that strength isn't something he's… Paul isn't saying to the Christian, I pray that you would strengthen yourself. I pray that you would pick yourself up by the bootstraps and just try harder. He's specifically praying for an alien strength, that from God being enacted upon us when we could not do it for ourselves. And that strength is being focused, it's being siphoned, it's being pointed at. The inner man, as he calls it, some of your translations may say heart, some of them may say inner man, same thing. Now, it's not the heart. A couple things about the inner man or the heart. The heart is not, he's not speaking literally about the the pumping beating heart that is inside you, nor is he speaking about a, a very simple aspect of you like your passions or your emotions. He's speaking about the, we could call it the cockpit of your personality, the very center of everything that drives you, including your passions and emotions and everything else, your will. Jonathan Edwards, uh, the 17, uh, Puritan from the 1700s, arguably one of the, the brightest theologians that our country has ever seen, instrumental in the hands of God for one of the greatest revivals that our country has ever seen, the Great Awakening that uh, flew like a storm through the eastern seaboard, starting in Massachusetts and Boston, praise God. Jonathan Edwards, in the 1700s, as he was looking at this incredible revival, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, began to write in his genius way of doing, articulating and analyzing and picking apart and unpacking certain things about that revival. And he would write an entire book about one single thing, the human heart or the inner man. What it is, how it works, what relation it has to salvation. He would call this book the religious affections. And he would begin to argue, first of all, that the, the affections are more than just passion It's more than just emotion. It's more even than just thinking thoughts. It's more than these things that are, uh, passion is just something that comes on you all of a sudden. It can overwhelm your mind. Affections are really the lively actions at the center of the personality, and it's those things which end up moving your will and your inclinations and your disposition. It's that deepest part of a human being that causes you to make the choices that you make. He would argue in this book, and go on to say that Christianity and the affections are intricately interwoven to the point that there is no true Christianity unless your affections are affected. Quote a line from him. He said, if the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. The reason why men are not affected by such infinitely great important, glorious, and wonderful things as they often hear and read of in the Word of God is undoubtedly because they are blind. For if they were not blind, it would be so impossible, utterly inconsistent with human nature, that their hearts should be otherwise than strongly impressed and greatly moved by such things. The affections are what the Bible refers to as the inner man. Paul is praying, In verse 16, I pray that you would find strength by God in the inner man through His Spirit. Edwards, to put it succinctly, was simply saying, the human heart cannot follow that which it does not already enjoy. You can follow it, and it can be for you some rote religious mechanistic uh, process, but the human heart cannot follow something that it does not already enjoy joy. And so Paul is praying in chapter 3, verse 16, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you church would be empowered in your affections, in your inner man, in your heart. This empowering as he moves on throughout the the Trinity, he makes his way to the Son of God. And in verse 17, he says, "I, I pray that you know, the Messiah would dwell in your hearts through faith, meaning that the the strengthening, that supernatural enabling in the heart by the Holy Spirit is synonymous with the indwelling of Christ in your heart. Now this is where it gets really nutty. The indwelling of the Son of God in the human heart. This is everything that we live for. This is everything that we exist for. So I want to be careful with it. I'm going to give you two things about it before we go too deeply into the indwelling of the Son of God. Remember these two things. The indwelling has to do with some type of an experience. More on that later. Two, it is an ongoing experience. It's never meant to stop. It's never meant to cease. There's no red light. I want you to notice... That this letter to the Ephesians was written to a group of Christians. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Now, as you're reading chapter 3, listening to Paul pray, did any of you just, like, did that rub you the wrong way just for a second? Wait a minute. Indwelling by Christ, Christians already thought Christians were already indwelt by Christ. By definition, a Christian is someone who's already indwelt by Christ. These are Christians. And that is true. As you scan the New Testament, you see in John 14, 23, uh, for example, Romans 8, verse 11, Colossians 1, 27, uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the definition of a converted person is someone who has Christ home in their hearts. And even children seem to know this by the the songs that they sing, uh, asking Christ to be in their hearts singing songs about Christ being in their hearts. There's something elementary about being born again that consists of Christ already being in the heart in a spiritual, supernatural way. And yet Paul is praying for an indwelling in the Christian by Christ. Why? Perhaps we'll be able to see why when we look more about what he's speaking about with the indwelling. He says in the next verse that this indwelling of of, of Christ in the heart will result in verse 18, that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. The indwelling of Christ will result in a deeper comprehension of God's love for you and I. There's your experience. Some of your Bibles may say comprehending, some of them may say grasping. I love that word, to grasp the love of the Father. I try not to, I don't want to just throw out foreign words for no reason unless it helps, and I think that this one will help for a deeper understanding of what Paul is saying. Paul, in his own language, would have used this word katalambano, katalambano. When it's translated into English, it comes out just like you hear it, to realize or to understand or to comprehend or to To grasp. But before Paul ever existed, this term was used specifically about ambushing a city. (laughs) When you were surrounding a city and you were coming around the walls and you wanted to surround the walls and lay siege, you were catalambanoing the city, you were ambushing them. So, in the active sense, it, it means to ambush, it means to seize, it means to take hold of, it means to grab a hold of. And in Paul's sense, he means it in a very active way to, to comprehend it, to realize, to take a hold of. So when Paul says that my deepest prayer, and this is the fulcrum of his entire prayer, is that you and I would comprehend the love of God. When he says, I want you to comprehend it. When I, I want you to know it more than you know it now. He's speaking more than just an intellectual assent, right? Right? He's speaking more than just a, an, a, an agreement that, yes, this, this is true stuff. He's speaking more than just about head knowledge. He's speaking more than just simple knowledge. He's speaking about a knowledge that is on fire. He's speaking about a knowledge that burns in the affections. See, you can know something to be true without ever being affected by that which you know. How many of you in here know the square root of nine? Hopefully a few of you. (laughs) Congratulations. (laughs) How many of you that know the square root of nine feel urged by that information to change the world? Maybe a couple of you if you're mathematicians. (laughs) Weird. (laughs) But for most of us, We just rack that up on the shelf next to other stuff that we know. Two plus two equals four, and four divided by two is two, I think. And there's some other stuff, and I know the alphabet, and I know some things about the Bible, and I know how to get to work on, on, you know, on Monday, and I know so many of these things, but those are simple pieces of knowledge that don't move you. You can know something without being affected by it. Case in point, that story about the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10. Remember when he gets the vision of this white blanket being opened and these animals pouring out with the hooved feet and it's all the animals that Jews were not supposed to eat or touch. And he looks at them and and he hears this voice in the vision and it says, pick up and eat. And he says, ugh, so not kosher. (laughs) And the voice says to him, no, do not call unclean what I have made clean. Dream's over. Vision is over. It's a call from a messenger. messenger says, I want you to come to my master's house, Cornelius. He's over here, Gentile. Come to my house. He's sent for you. Peter goes to the house, and in that house listens to Cornelius say, I, I had a vision as well. I had this dream. I had this dream that you were supposed to come here, and give me a message. Peter's like, all right, I'm going to give you a message. Delivers the gospel. Cornelius and his household get saved, baptized. The Spirit of God falls on Gentiles for the first time in history, and Peter's baffled. Peter's not the only one baffled. The apostles are baffled. They're like, well, that's not really supposed to happen to non-Jews, but it happened to them, right? Peter's like, yeah, the Holy Spirit fell on them. They're speaking in tongues and getting crazy and can't just manufacture that, dude. So I think it's a real deal. But halfway through the conversation with Cornelius, in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, he says, it says that Peter began to speak and said, now I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism. Now, Peter already knew that. He's the apostle, man. He's like one of the pillars of the faith. He writes pieces of the Bible. He walked with Jesus for three years. Jesus, who is teaching him uh, euphorically and emphatically all of the stuff about the grace of God, about sitting at the other end of the table and not lording yourself over other people, and how God doesn't show favoritism because He is a gracious God. Peter knew this stuff. What is he saying right now? He's saying, I had the knowledge in my head, but now it is burning within me, and I get it. Peter knew something to be true, but wasn't affected by it until God divinely revealed it to him. God wasn't revealing to Peter something that was new, that wasn't written in the books. He was revealing something that was already there, that Peter had just been confronted with. And he says, now I really understand. You know what the word he uses there is? Catalambano. I have been ambushed. Now I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism. Paul then in the same in, in Ephesians chapter three is praying with the same word. I pray that you would be catalambanoed. I pray that you would be ambushed. I pray that you would be divine that it would be divinely revealed to you this continual experience of the depths of God's love for you. I am praying that the love of God, which doubtless many Christians know and can write down and can sing about. We sing about it every Sunday. He's praying, I pray that you would get more than just the, the information in your head. I pray that it would become for you knowledge on fire. This would make sense regarding the church. If the church was filled with people who had not just head knowledge, but knowledge on fire as Christ calls the church to be the salt of the earth and a city set on a hill that we are to be in the world but not of it but in it for what reason to take up space and wait for God to return for Christ to return no to to spread and proclaim the gospel and to be an extension of Christ's love if you've been around for any length of time you're not ignorant to the fact that we have a problem Christians are not generally known for being very loving. We have not accumulated, and this isn't one person that anyone's picking on, but us as a whole. We have not, we have not developed a reputation for being overly loving with each other and with people outside of the church. And I... I don't mean the love, love as our culture knows it. I want us to pull away from Hollywood's version of love for a second to look at what Paul would describe as love. You guys know this verse in 1 Corinthians. It's it's difficult. Love is patient. Or literally, love is long-suffering. Love has the ability to suffer long for somebody else. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love is not boastful. Love is not conceited. How many of you at this point feel like you've already failed at love in the past week. We ain't even a quarter of the way through, man. Love does not act improperly. Love is not selfish. Love is not provoked. I get provoked like every day. Love, this one is a doozy. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness. It rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures everything. Love never ends. David Kinneman, the president of the Barna Group in Ventura, and his friend Gabe Lyons wrote this book a couple of years ago that you are probably familiar with called Unchristian, What a Generation Thinks of Christianity, in which he compiled this data, this research, not what we feel, not how we think we're doing, but research based on thousands of people between, I believe it's the age of 18 and 25, or it might be 29, young adults outside the church and what they view Christians inside the church. And I don't think any of us are ignorant to the fact that we sometimes make mistakes and come across the wrong way, and perhaps there's one or two people out there that think that we're, we're mean or judgmental or hypocritical, but I, I imagine that probably most people in the world think we're doing okay. The church does a lot of good. Overwhelmingly Overwhelmingly, we could not be more wrong. 91% of young adults outside the church see Christians, number one, as anti-homosexual. 87% of young adults outside the church see, look into the church and see Christians as hypocritical. 81% of young adults outside the church look at us and view us as judgmental. That's like 8 out of 10. Think about that for a second. Because you could be the total, bare minimum, supernatural exception to all of that. You could be the daughter of Teresa of Avila. You could be the most loving, kind-hearted, generous, wonderful person in the world. But your reputation has been marred by what people have experienced in their lives. And what they have experienced comes out in the research that says they largely view the church as these three things. Now, that type of information should have an effect on us. It should have a, a, a twofold effect. One, it should humble us, two, it should move us to change. This information should be for us both horrific and hopeful. Here's why it's horrific this is not what God has called the church to be and we must. And sure, we could make up excuses and say that, well, you know what, the church has done a lot of good things, and they are ignoring that, and I do a lot of good things, and I'm a good person. You know what, they should pay attention to the good Christians. For whatever reason, they are not. The world sees this. And so, it is horrific because we are, and we should take responsibility for where we have made mistakes, but it is simultaneously hopeful because we should be able to say, yes, the church is made up of a bunch of messed up people. When you look into the church, you should find all the reasons that the world needs redemption. Isn't that what Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 17? Those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Church is not made up of a bunch of polished, superb Wonderful, perfect, altogether loving, altogether lovely people. It is made up of sick people who have found a trail of bread. And the fact is, and we are called to evangelize, but think about it this way we are called to evangelize, uh, evangelize the outsider with the good news, simultaneously keeping in mind that we also do not need to go very far from our own walls to find people that need the gospel. I need the gospel. The gospel is for Christians, too. And contrary to popular belief, the gospel is not that we are very loving. We should be loving based on what the gospel is, but the gospel is not primarily how loving we are. The gospel is that God is loving towards people who are unloving. God demonstrates His love in this way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is that God loves us. And his love is seen and put on its loudest display in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, where it says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. His love is seen most vividly and most tenaciously and most aggressively and most wonderfully in the cross of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this question. How in the world can Christians believe in a loving God that calls us to love others and still not love? Paul would say it's because we have not comprehended. We know it and we read it and we can jot it down on paper, but it has not caused a fire in us. And Paul, in chapter 3, overwhelmed with the truth of what is facing him about the glory of the Lord and the sinfulness of man, falls to his knees ditches the traditional ways of praying overcome with emotion and he beseeches the trinity the godhead and he asks and he says for this reason in verse one and then he goes on a tangent and he loses his train of thought and he goes where right back to the gospel displaying the redemptive story of god and then he's like oh okay i I forgot what i was saying oh yeah i remember verse 14 for this reason i kneel before the father and i pray i pray for what paul I pray that you would be empowered, Christian, that you would be indwelled, that you would be able to have supernatural comprehension of that which is incomprehensible. Why, Paul? Why do you want us to have that? Because Paul understands what we should understand, that you can repeat and know a basic truth about God, and yet if you do not live by it, it's because you have heard without being grasped. You can repeat a basic truth, yet not live by it, because you are hearing without believing. Jonathan Edwards would continue on in his book saying that nothing is more manifest, in fact, than that the things of religion take hold of men's souls no further than they affect them. And there are multitudes who often hear the word of God of things infinitely great and important and which most nearly concern them, yet all seems to be holy and effectual upon them and to make no alterations in their disposition and behavior. The reason is they are not affected with what they hear. Paul prays desperately, I pray that you would be affected. I pray that by the power of the Spirit, by the riches of the glory of God, by the indwelling of the Son of God, that you would just be, that you would just be, that you would just be taken over, that you would be overflowing with the fullness of, the the filling of the fullness of of God in all of His form. Paul ultimately wants maturity. And when he speaks about maturity, he, he mentions it in verse 17, that we would be rooted and grounded in love. Meaning that, And he's speaking in in this tense that requires that we are continually rooted and grounded. He's speaking about maturity. He's he's saying, even though the gospel is not about what you're able to bring to the table, the gospel will change you in order to love. And he's saying that the way that you mature in love is to first drink deeply of his love for you. The way that you mature in Christianity is to drink deeply of the gospel. To be grasped by, not to simply know, not to simply memorize, not to simply recite, not to simply sing, but to be overwhelmed in the deepest part of who you are. I want to take a second right here to address another angle that we'll sometimes go when we hit this, because a lot of you are super passionate about the Lord. You're you're hearing this and you're like, yeah, whatever, dude. Fullness of God, I pray that He pour himself out right here in my seat. I just have a problem with the church. It's the community. God, I, I love. I love everything about God. We we cruise together in my car, iTunes worship in my, in my closet. We get together real close and intimate, but it's the church that kind of throws off all of that love stuff. The problem is community isn't always as romantic as we Portray it, and that is totally true, right? We love to throw around that word, community. <laughs> Let's have community. It's like the buzzword of the of the church. C.S. <laughs> Lewis, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. Of people who are about to get married, he said, prepare to be torn. I love Jean Austen in her benchmark book, Pride and Prejudice, one of her characters, Charlotte. Saying to her friend who was falling in love, uh, saying to Elizabeth, she said, It is better to know as little as possible of the defects of the other person with whom you are to pass your life. Why? To love it all is to be vulnerable. And we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to open up. We don't want accountability. We don't want to submit to one another. We don't want to get too close. Maybe a little bit close just so we can have community, but we don't want to get too close. (laughs) Lest you break my heart just like the last group of people did. Community is only romantic when you're good at keeping other people from a distance. Let me be the first to confess that I am masterful at this. And the New Testament knows nothing of that. Even in Paul's prayer, verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. God is a family God. You've been saved into a family. He says in verse 18, at the fulcrum of his prayer, the whole point of the whole prayer, I pray that you would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the the length and width and height and depth of God's love. The prayer is that you would comprehend God's love with each other. And he closes it in his massive, crazy doxology in verse 21. To him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus, meaning all of that glory that he's trying to access, all of that that wonderful weight of the presence of God that's being put on display has to come from a gathering of people who are sharing life together in the blood of Jesus Christ. And this makes sense when you think about where community comes from. Humanity never invented it. It occurred and existed before we ever walked the face of the earth. And contrary to what we might think, God didn't create humanity because He was bored or lonely. He actually existed, as we see in Genesis, in perfect harmony and relationship with Himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So why did He make you and me? Well, He has so much of Himself. He apparently wanted to share it. That's something to live for. In God, we see what love looks like not just in the Trinity, but in community. In fact, that's a litmus test for real Christianity. Jesus said in John thirteen 35, you'll know they are my disciples for their love for one another. So, if you are that type that is afraid of being hurt and vulnerable, you're in good company. But if you're the type that is afraid of being hurt and vulnerable to the effect that you will never be vulnerable with people, you will never open up, you will never be accountable, you will never open up your life and share your life with other believers, you will never be a part of a local gathering of believers, of a local church, of a a group of of people that call out on his name, If, if your fear of pain and vulnerability cause you to withdraw from the people of God. I've got good news for you, and I've got bad news. The good news is that what you're trying to accomplish will happen. You'll save yourself from a lot of drama. because let me tell you about church. There's a lot of drama. Anywhere you stick a bunch of sinners together, there's going to be a drama. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to bum each other out. I'm going to fail you. You're going to fail me. I'm not going to live up to your expectations, and vice versa. You're going to cut each other off in the parking lot. You're going to do things and make hand motions on the highway that you wish you didn't. You're going to say things that you wish you didn't. You're going to do things that you wish you didn't, because we're broken people that are in need of a Savior. And so, if you withdraw from the people of God, you'll save yourself all that drama, but you also miss out on a comprehensive experience of Christ's love as it was meant to be, because, and we can be honest, the church is messy. Community is messy. It is not always as romantic as we would like it to be. It is messy. But the redemption of a broken community is altogether beautiful. And that's what Ephesians 4 is all about. It's the practical outworking of our position in Christ with one another. We're going to see not just what Paul says, but what it looks like. And it involves sticking together. When I, was a, when I was first married to my wife, Brianna, we moved into this studio apartment, if you can call it that. It was more like a tiny... I don't know what it was. <laughs> but we couldn't stand up in it, that's for sure. The little pieces of furniture that we did have took up all the square footage. It was a very small space. Our bed was so big that you, you couldn't stand up in the bedroom, the only purpose of the room was to sleep. And even if you wanted to get to the bathroom, through the bedroom you had to kind of shimmy along the wall between the, the bed and the wall. The living room had three pieces of furniture which apparently was so big that there was nothing you could do in the living room except sit on the couch. And so our first year and a half of marriage was sitting on the couch. And everybody can attest to this, that when you when you get married there is that honeymoon phase right, where everything is perfect and everything is jolly and nothing is wrong with anything. And then as you begin to know each other, as you truly are, you might begin to peel away certain layers and bump shoulders, putting it very romantically right now. And, it, and that happened with us. and might have been as simple and small and paltry as, you know, I'd, NBA finals are on, I want to watch that. No, HDTV is on at the same time, I want to watch that. Or you said this or I said that or you did this and I don't appreciate that or, you know, the things that we do when we get together in community started to happen. And my immediate inclination whenever that happens with anybody is to bail. I just don't want to deal with you. All the stuff that I had pent up over the many years of me bailing was coming to an explosion in my first two years of marriage as I just wanted to, just wanted to leave the, the scene or at least go into another room, but there was no other room. <laughs> and the farthest that either of us could get from one another since we were both sitting on the couch most likely is maybe a couple inches from one another. But ultimately, we were there with each other and we learned really quick there's no leaving. And we were, in a sense, forced into a covenant relationship. We were forced to forgive and to see past those things and to reconcile and to serve one another and to sacrifice our desires on each other's behalf. And we are forced into it. We didn't just do that directly. It was by the grace of God. We learned early on there's no leaving. This is a covenant relationship. You know what the church is? It's a covenant community. There's no leaving your brothers and sisters. And that's really hard, Right? Because you're going to get bummed. And you have to base your commitment to the people of God on something other than the people of God. It better be on the priceless blood of Jesus spilt and spent for you. In this way, Paul is saying, when you comprehend that in such a way that you taste it and you understand like Peter and Paul understood you will, as he called it, be filled with all the fullness of God. That term, when Paul uses it, speaks of a way of life. It literally means being brought to maturity. In other words, if you are really being indwelled, if you are experiencing the indwelling of Christ in your life, it will result in maturity, which takes tangible effect in your relationships with one another. Can you look back on the past year and say, well, yeah, I used to be totally irritated and, and, and I, I'd totally clam up and run away from people and I'd say the wrong thing and I'd lash out and I'm still not perfect, but I'm totally not the same person I was. If you can do that, Paul is saying, you are maturing, you are being filled with the fullness of God. And that proves that everything before that was more than an experience. Because listen, if you leave this building with nothing more than just the hair on the back of your neck going up, if you leave this place with, with nothing more than just an emotional high, you've left with nothing because your affections have not been touched. But if your affections are touched, your life will be changed. And Paul is praying with the depths of his being that the Holy Spirit would empower you and I, believers, And that in that empowerment, we would be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And that spiritual maturity would take place in such a vivid way that it could be identified with self-sacrificial love towards each other and towards outsiders. I want to bring you back to what Paul originally said. Because that's a hard thing to accomplish. And the good news is, you don't have to. God accomplishes it in hard hearts. To respond and to let that happen, remember the gospel, and an easy way to do that is we 're going to sing about the gospel, so begin to think about the lyrics to begin to think about this these confessions that we 're making with one another, and worship the Lord. think about his love being poured out towards you, and remind yourself of a love that was displayed for sinners. Some of you need a, a fresh feeling of the Holy Spirit because you You look at your life and you say, I am totally not like what Paul describes anywhere. You need the power of the the Holy Spirit in your life. You can get prayer at all three campuses, to the left and to the right. Lay hands on you and the Spirit of God will fall afresh in your life for that power. Paul said that we are indwelt by Christ through faith. You know what one of the basic, most powerful ways of bolstering Christian faith is? Taking communion. For in taking of the bread and taking of the cup, you remind yourself that there was absolutely nothing that you brought to the table, but Christ did it all according to the riches of the glory of his Father. Let's do this together as a church. Let's marinate and dwell in the eternal, incomprehensible, wonderful, transformative, tenacious love of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, Pray right now that as we sing together, you would manifest yourself in a powerful way. You would begin to turn the tables on all of the thought processes that we're used to having. We're used to saying, I want to try harder and do better for you. I pray that you would enforce in our hearts that you have done perfectly for us. Even right now as we're preparing, some of us are are thinking, I want to sing I want to sing in a true way, but I pray that you would remind us, according to Zephaniah chapter 3, that you are singing over us songs of deliverance. Some of us are dwelling upon our failures and upon our inability to do anything right. I pray that you would overwhelm our failures and our, our discorded feelings with your perfection and your righteousness, which you have given to us freely by grace. And I pray that in this house, you would renew our hearts again, Lord. This church, which by grace has existed for almost a decade, that you would not let us grow tired, weary, and dare I say familiar with the eternal truths of the gospel. Revive our hearts again. Open our eyes to see something lovely and wonderful. In Jesus' name.